this morning we're going to consider a new edict from the king. A new edict from the king and we're looking at Esther chapter 8. Last week we saw that Haman the Agagite, who was the Prime Minister of the Medo-Persian Empire, that vast empire with 127 provinces, Haman secured an official order from King Ahasuerus to kill and destroy all the Jews in a year's time. He met his end when he was hanged from gallows, that's what we saw last week. It all went wrong for Haman and he ended up being hanged on gallows that he had erected for Mordecai, the Jew, to be hanged on because Mordecai had repeatedly refused to honour Haman. You think, why would Haman worry about it? Why would it bother him if just one person refused to bow down, reverence him, move out the way for him, but it really did bug him and he was enraged by that. So not only did he want to kill Mordecai the Jew, he wanted to kill all the Jews and he secured uh, an official order from the king, written in the name of the king, signed, uh, rather sealed with the, um, the ring from the king's hand, to kill all the Jews in a year's time. Today we shall consider a new edict from King Ahaz Uerus. Let's have a look again at chapter 8 and verses 1 and 2. On that day did the King Ahaz Uerus give the house of Haman the Jews' enemy unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. In these verses we see that now Haman is dead. King Ahasuerus, who gave the order for him to be hanged on the gallows, has given Haman's possessions to Queen Esther, and he has given Haman's important position in the empire to Mordecai. With regards to Haman and his possessions, back in chapter 5 and verse 11, Haman had bragged about the glory of his riches. He bragged to his wife, he bragged to his friends about all that he had. But now, having left the world as he came into it with absolutely nothing, like the rest of us will leave this world with nothing. I say that actually, as, and even as I say it, I correct myself, if you're a Christian, you leave this world with everything, don't you? Because you're going home to Jesus to be with him. So you don't leave with nothing at all. You leave this world with all spiritual blessings in Christ, if you belong to him. But anyway, Haman, he left this world with absolutely nothing. And what used to be his house became the possession of Queen Esther, courtesy of her husband, King Ahasuerus, who gave Haman's possessions to her, his house and so on. As for Mordecai, Esther told the king about her relationship to him, that they were cousins, that he had brought her up as his daughter when her parents had died, 
And finally, about five years after Mordecai had foiled a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus, finally we see now that he's being greatly rewarded and to think he never even sought power and riches for himself. We don't see that anywhere in this book. Mordecai seeking to um, gain power in, in the empire. Nevertheless, Mordecai prospered materially and substantially in accordance with God's own purpose. Also, the ring that had been used to seal the fate of the Jews in that first edict was now the possession of Mordecai. That doesn't mean to say that God has promised this kind of outcome in the world for all his people. We see everything turning out rosy for Mordecai. But that's not always the case, far from it. Not all Christians receive promotions and special honours, that's for sure. In fact, some get fired because of their stand for Jesus and for righteousness, and others lose their lives for his sake. Even so, as has become abundantly clear in the book of Esther, God is sovereign over all things, and he works all things out for the good of them that love him and are called according to his purpose. Most of all, God works everything out for his glory. Let's have a look at verses 3 through to 6. And Esther spake yet again before the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter towards Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it please the king, and if I have found favour in his sight, and the thing seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, Let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I uh, endure to see the destruction of my kindred? There was still the matter of the official order to destroy the Jews, that first official order to destroy all the Jews in all the 127 provinces of the empire. Even though the wicked Haman was dead, that edict that had been written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring was still in force. Therefore, Queen Esther on her knees and with tears in her eyes continued to plead with the king on behalf of her people, the Jews. Clearly, Queen Esther was constrained by a love and a concern for her kindred, for her to continue to plead for them. How could she enjoy her privileged position when her people were still under sentence of death? As she said in verse 6, For how... Can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? In other words, how can I endure seeing the destruction of my kindred? Esther demonstrated her love and her concern for her people 
by continuing to plead for their lives. To ignore their plight would have been selfish and it would have been heartless. Being selfish and heartless, actually it comes naturally to sinful people. But if you are trusting in Jesus as your saviour from sin, then there is an ongoing, a progressive work of sanctification taking place in you. It's the work of God, the Holy Spirit. God is working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure and not to do of your selfish good pleasure. Consequently, you will no doubt bring forth fruit of the Spirit, the first of which is love. In fact, as a Christian, the love of God is shed abroad. It is poured out in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which is given to you. There's no mites or anything about it. It is. The the love of God is shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit if you belong to Jesus. Therefore, far from being selfish, as a Christian, your concern will be for others and your inclination will be to pray for the deliverance of your people as Esther did. As a Christian, you will be burdened to pray for your family and more broadly, to pray for this wicked nation that we live in, that people would repent and receive forgiveness of their sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That will be your burden, praying that people would turn from their evil ways, that they would repent and that they would receive Jesus as their saviour. If God has graciously and mercifully stretched out his golden scepter of mercy towards you and saved you from your sins, then how can you not, with tears, plead for others, including your family, your friends and others who are in darkness and under condemnation, as you once were? Let's have a look at verse 11. Wherein the king granted the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Queen Esther's plea was for the king to reverse or to revoke that first decree, the decree that um, was to kill the Jews, authority to kill all the Jews. However, despite her being on her knees, despite the tears in her eyes, and despite the king having already offered her on three occasions, no less, uh, to give her up to half of his kingdom, he was not able to do as the queen requested. As has already been pointed out previously, once an edict was issued in the Persian Empire, it could not be revoked, not even by the king. We can be thankful that our laws can be revoked here on this island. After all, people are fallible, they are sinful, including kings, including our politicians who formulate our laws and have desperately wicked hearts, and have been known to lie. Yes, 
our politicians have been known to lie. Would you believe it? Therefore, it needs to be acknowledged that human decrees and laws will inevitably be far from perfect and oftentimes the laws of the land clearly and obviously violate God's holy and righteous laws. For example, abortion laws that permit the murder of babies are clearly evil. They are clearly a violation of God's holy and righteous laws. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who prays that those wicked laws would be revoked. Coming back to the situation in the Medo-Persian Empire, even though the king was not able to reverse or to rescind the order to kill all the Jews, at least he permitted the uh, Queen Esther and Mordecai to to write a new decree in his name and seal it with his ring, the ring that he had first given to Mordecai first given to Haman and now given to Mordecai. Consequently, under the direction of Mordecai, a new order was written which allowed the Jews to defend themselves on the exact same day that the first order allowed for the Jews to be attacked, to be killed, to be destroyed. According to verse 11, the new order permitted the Jews to stand for their life to destroy, to slay and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them. What can be seen developing is that despite the prospect of a fight for survival taking place in about, well not in about, I think in exactly nine months time, on the 23rd day of the month Sivan, and with the prospect of bloodshed and death that would inevitably ensue, God's purpose for the Jews would nevertheless prevail. They would not be destroyed, and about 500 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ would most certainly and most definitely come down from heaven to save sinners, and he would be born a Jew. Let's have a look at verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness, and joy, and honour. When the news of that second edict reached the Jews, instead of the loud crying and lamentation that there had been with the first edict, there was now gladness and joy, and honour was afforded to them from those who had up until that time held them in contempt. Perhaps you can imagine something of the great sense of relief felt by the Jews, followed by the euphoria, the happiness and the joy when they received that news. Can you imagine it? Seriously, try to imagine it. You're under sentence of death. You know that in, well, what was now nine months' time, you're going to be attacked and most likely you're going to be put to death. And then suddenly you receive the news Well, actually, you can put up a fight. You can fight for all your worth. The day hasn't been cancelled, but at least you can fight for your life now. That's something to rejoice about. It's not everything, is it? You probably think, well, I'd rather if the whole thing was cancelled and I didn't have to fight at all, but at least I can do something now. 
I can prepare. I can maybe get some weapons ready and, and, and um, take karate classes or, or whatever and get ready for that day. Yeah? However, as great as that news must have been to them, infinitely greater, and I mean this, infinitely greater, must surely be the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to emphasise this, because I'm sure even the Christians in here don't realise that the good news of Jesus is infinitely greater than that second edict. Because it speaks of the incarnate Son of God becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, for all who trust in him. That is good news. It speaks of God's holy laws no longer condemning you to hell and everlasting destruction if Jesus is your saviour from sin. Wonderful news, that is. And it, and that is because if if you are a Christian, Jesus was wounded for your transgressions on that cross. He was bruised for your iniquities. The Lord have laid on him your iniquity. And with his stripes you are healed. Jesus has brought you peace and reconciliation with God by the blood of his cross. Peace with God. What more could you ask for? We all have to stand before God. Sadie, she had to stand before God Tuesday night. But she did so. Washed in the blood of Jesus. Clothed in his righteousness. How wonderful is that? You now stand before God holy and without blame, having been washed, cleansed even now. Each one of you, if you're trusting in Christ. And you have every assurance that when you die, you will go to be with Jesus forevermore. So it really doesn't matter that much what happens to you in this world. And going back to this second edict, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping outside the, the text here, but I'm thinking, well, even if the whole thing had been cancelled and the king was able to issue an order, no one touched the Jews. That first edict, I've cancelled it. Wonderful, wonderful. You thought euphoria there would have been. Even that is not the same and is nowhere near as good as the good news of Jesus. There's no news in this world. I think that's what I'm getting at. There, no matter what news, good news there is in the world, it doesn't even begin to compare with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world to save sinners. Nothing to compare. The news that the Jews in the Persian Empire received was undoubtedly undoubtedly rather great and well worth celebrating even though they still had to fight for their lives but surely surely if you're a Christian you can appreciate just how wonderful the good news of Jesus is so don't keep it to yourself why would you want to keep that news to yourself you know I guess if someone won the lottery if someone 
does the lottery and they win the lottery, are they going to keep that to themselves? Or, or anything. You can think of all sorts of things that you'd want to share with people. How much more so the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And the joy that that should give you as a Christian, that you have been reconciled to God, that God is your Father, Jesus, your Saviour, that should fill you with joy. It's not for nothing, the Apostle Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. I reckon the king in this book of Esther, he was exaggerating somewhat when he promised to give, when, when he said he would give the queen up to half his kingdom. I don't really believe he meant it. That was the language of exaggeration. But I don't believe that Paul was exaggerating when he said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I'm sure he meant every word of that. We should do. Even when we're going through various trials and tribulations in this world, there should still be a joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Always, Paul says, always. And surely that unspeakable joy ought to translate into a heart that is filled with thanksgiving to the God of your salvation and a born-again life that is lived for his glory. Let's have a look at verse 17. And in every province, and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. It's written there in verse 17 that many of them became Jews. Furthermore, the Greek translation of the Bible, the Septuagint, says that they were circumcised. These people who became Jews were circumcised. As such, many of the pagans in the Medo-Persian Empire who had held the Jews in contempt up until that second edict was issued, they adopted both the Jewish people and their God having no doubt seen that God was with the Jews. They would have known that Jehovah, the God of the Jews, was very much with his people and that he would bring enlargement and deliverance to them, no matter what. By now they could see that. They would no doubt have echoed the words of the harlot Rahab in Jericho, who 1,000 years earlier said to two Israelite spies, The Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. As the Lord graciously brought them into the commonwealth of Israel and into faith with him, those pagans who adopted the Jewish religion would have been like Ruth the Moabites, who in Ruth chapter 1 verse 16 said to her mother-in-law, Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. And all of that would have been in line with prophecy, for it is written in Zechariah chapter 8, 
verse 23, ten men shall take hold out of all languages of all of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. We'll have some applications now. Even now, God is pleased to use his people. Not the Jews of old. He is pleased to use born-again Christians to attract sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ. As such, all you Christians are to be lights, shining bright for your Saviour in this dark world of sin. And people will see it. They will see that God is with you. By the way, that inevitably means shining a light on the sins of those people and on their need to be reconciled to a sin-hating God through faith in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no good just being a wonderful person or trying to be a wonderful person each day because you know, as well as I do, (laughs) it doesn't always happen. Some days are better than others. Uh, You need to talk to people. Talk to them about Jesus. Tell them the good news of Christ coming into this world to save sinners. People who are in spiritual darkness and without the hope of glory ought to be affected by your conduct, your godly conversation and the heavenly hope that you have. And they hear about from you. And in accordance with God's good purpose, God's purpose, some of them may well say to you, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. As they receive Jesus as their saviour from sin and they believe on his name. Do you think I'm exaggerating? Then think back to those dear Christians whom God used when he brought you to saving faith in Jesus. People who are very special in your life, who were God's instruments in bringing you to the Saviour. Pray that God might be pleased to use you as his instrument for the salvation of helpless and hopeless sinners. Coming back to Haman now, a fight for survival by the Jews may well have been avoided had Haman changed direction and had he not pursued his evil campaign against the Jews. But he didn't change his track, the, 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 the direction that he was on. He remained on a path that would lead him to destruction. He lost his life at the gallows and later on the Jews would successfully defend themselves according to God's purpose. But you know what? Even Christians can be too stubborn to admit that they've got it wrong, too proud to just say sorry. What often follows is misery for themselves and for others. Therefore, dear Christian, be under no illusion. You can be the same as that wicked man, Haman, if you're not careful fighting God by going against his will. And yes, I'm talking to Christians. You can go against his will with the result that God, what God has decreed will nevertheless prevail. 
even though your rebellion may well result in misery for others and yourself. You need to guard against that happening by prostrating yourself before the throne of God on a regular basis. If you're anything like me, it won't be once in a blue moon. You'll come before God and you you will be seeking forgiveness for your latest blunder or the latest outburst or whatever it is that you have said or done that is has hurt someone and that has dishonoured the God of your salvation. You, in other words, you will be looking, as a Christian, you will be looking to God to deliver you from evil. Am I exaggerating? Again, I'm not. I'm not. What is it that Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Deliver us from evil. He was teaching Christians to pray, deliver us from evil. It's amazing to think that there are people who claim to have acknowledged their sin. They claim to have shown repentance towards God. They profess to have sought forgiveness and to have received Jesus as their saviour from sin. Yet amazingly, they never seem to climb down. They never seem to get off their high horse and apologise when they have got it wrong and they have caused upset. If the life that you now live in the flesh is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought to be characterised by you saying sorry to those whom you hurt. It's not the world that you can that we need to expect to say sorry. It's us as Christians. It also your your born again life ought to be characterized by you confessing your sins before God, who is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if you're someone who is not a Christian, fall before God with tears in your eyes and plead for others, or rather not for others. Queen Esther, she pleaded for others. She pleaded for her kindred. But if you're not a, uh, a, if you're not a Christian, plead for yourself. Pray that God would deliver you from the path that you are presently on. A path that dishonours God, that causes pain and that will result in the destruction of your body and your soul in hell. Receive Jesus as your saviour, believing that after he had lived a life of sinless perfection on your behalf, he carried in his own body the guilt and the shame of your stubbornness, your pride and your other sins. Believe these things and you will be saved. Amen.